Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm here with Adam, Alex, Daryl, and I'm Caleb. This week we're going to be talking about the Antinocene Fathers, and we're going to go through and talk about the time frame of what's happening, the structure of it all, uh, just different things that were happening at that time. And actually, I think the first question should be, um, really, why are they called the anti-Nicene Fathers? That's good, Caleb, yeah. Um, anti? Like, no, no, like anti. Yeah, no, anti. Uh, yeah, yeah, anti, like, uh, like an antechamber. So these are the people, the Church Fathers, before the Council of Nicaea that was in 325. Okay, and I think we left off last week, so we were talking about the Apostolic Fathers. Right. That was kind of from like 95-ish to 200 or... Yeah, I mean, we can roughly date the Apostolic Fathers to those guys writing contemporary with the Apostles up until the latter part of the 2nd century. And then from 200, 2nd century, oh my goodness, 2nd century to 325. Well, so, yeah, I mean, the Anti-Nicene Fathers would include guys like Justin Martyr, and he converts sometime around 140. He's martyred right around 165. So you've got a classification of guys that, I mean, there's some real, real serious overlap here. So we would distinguish between the Apostolic Fathers and the Anti-Nicaea or Before Nicaea Fathers. We distinguish them because we want to we mark out those fellows that knew the Apostles. Right. As opposed to those who were still early church leaders, but we don't have a lot of historical evidence that they were personally discipled by the apostles or somebody real close to them. So Justin Martyr's in the middle of the 100s, and then we would take this all the way up to, you know, the latter 200s, early, early 300s. Basically, right up to Nicaea, a little bit before, you know, Constantine making Christianity legal. That, that's kind of the, the time frame we're looking at here. So when you say Nicaea, what exactly do you mean? Nicaea, uh, ni- nice. It was a place. Okay. So there's a lot of what we will talk about, what we'll see here in this discussion this morning is that there's a lot of stuff that's going on in this time frame that creates instability in the church. And the biggest issue that develops at the end of this time frame is a priest in Alexandria named Arius who began to teach that Christ was created. He was the first creation of God. And already the method, the theological method that we've, we've talked about in the past, was already being employed. So Arius says, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the fathers have said. Here's what we've received. Christ is created. And his main antagonist, the guy that stands against him the most, is Alexander, who's the bishop, then there, and then the man who succeeds Alexander is Athanasius. Gotcha. But those guys we would classify as Nicene fathers. That conflict creates a necessity for a world council. And as far as we can tell, there hadn't been one since Acts chapter 15. Lots of local councils, local synods, if you will. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that as well. But there's, there's your difference. Nicaea okay. was a place. And, and that's where they had the council at. Right, the council okay. of Nicaea. And we'll do that in a, in a next... Another. Sure, I just wanted to make sure that we all understood that. So during this time period, we kind of see the church is still... And I think... When you saw from the Apostolic Fathers, you can see that transition where it's coming from the disciples of the apostles, and then now you're getting that point where they're then establishing leaders. So, like, how was that structure forming, and what was there kind of what was exactly happening with that? Because obviously, there's since it's getting more, um, what's the word for it? 
bigger, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> as no, the church is more growing. bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as the church is growing. Yeah, the church yeah. is spreading out. I mean, by the time Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, he says the gospel's been preached all over the place, all over the world. It's already gone around the world to be preached. We know that in that first century period, the gospel is in India. Thomas goes to India. We've got somebody, Aristobulus perhaps in Romans 16, the man of the West, making it to Roman Britain, the western portions of Africa on the Atlantic coast. I mean, the gospel has gone everywhere that they know to go by the time John's writing the Revelation in 95 AD. I'm a a late 90s guy for John's Revelation. I know there's some argument about that, but let's assume that he didn't write the Revelation then, and we'll just say John's gospel was written then, right? It's written later. So by the end of the first century, Gospel's gone everywhere. What you're seeing with this classification in time with these church fathers is that they're now encountering different doctrinal errors that their predecessors didn't deal with. So because there's been an established body of doctrine and there's been an established form of living out the Christian life, now what they're going to deal with are people who want to buck the system, as it were. Or, or, as I mentioned with Arius, although we're not going to talk about him at length today, people who start to rise and to claim that what they're teaching is really what the apostles taught. A perfect example is a man named Marcion in the middle 100s in Rome. And he is the first guy who actually compiles a list of New Testament books that he says is the New Testament. It just so happens he's wrong. So even the collection of our 27 books that we call the New Testament is a result of the church telling a heretic, no, this isn't right. And then they say, here's the books we've received, and that takes a long time. That takes a few centuries, as a matter of fact, before they agree upon the whole 27 books, I'll put it that way. So we've got this expansion, but with the expansion comes interaction with new ideas, and then a a kind of syncretism starts to take place where you get guys like Marcion who say, no, I'm standing in succession to the apostles. Or you get Montanus, no, I'm standing in succession to the apostles. No, yeah, hands were laid upon me, and here's my teaching. Or the Spirit came upon me, and here's my teaching. All of that stuff is breaking out across the, the second century, the 100s. And so the, the fathers that we're looking at here, in the, that era of the 100s and into the 200s, they are fighting that from what we would call an Orthodox or a Catholic perspective. So I know I brought this up in, in our last one, talking about the apostolic fathers. But so these guys, the, the fathers here, are writing, right? We would say writing or, or teaching or preaching, whatever they're doing, but they're, they're preaching or, or writing against some of these heresies, right? Is it? Yeah. So with the, with the growth of the church, like you're saying, there was a lot of, I'd say, wild ideas, a lot of heresies mm-hmm. coming up. So these fathers, so that's, is that, I guess that's what makes them fathers because they're important figures in the church. And, but where do you think they got most of their teachings from? Because obviously we see the apostolic fathers, they got it right from the apostles. So was it more of like a passed down thing, or was it like seeing their writings, or where do we yeah. see the continuity of that? Let me give you an example from Irenaeus, who was the last of the apostolic fathers. Okay. And he is contemporary with these classification of anti-Nicene fathers. He's the one that really codifies for us the doctrine of the apostolic succession, okay. which is the tactile transmission of authority through the laying on of hands and the transmission of doctrine with corresponding life change and power. So it's a, it's a fullness of transmission. It's not one singular thing, okay? Why is he writing that? Because even in his, his uh, Against Heresies, he gives us a list of all the bishops in Rome back to Peter. And at the time he's writing, there had been 12, and he tells us who they are. Right. Well, why is he articulating this doctrine 
in a more fleshed out way than even Clement does in his first letter. It's because the these false teachers that were arising were claiming to be the apostolic succession. And he says, no, you're not. And I can prove that your teaching is false because you've got a different collection of books. You don't have the historical lineage behind you. It doesn't matter that you have signs and wonders and you're prophesying and you're healing, healing the sick. So, yes, if that... Yes. It, it's, yeah, yeah. So kind of a, a piggyback off that or a little caveat to that, that statement. Um, were they dealing with people who were in the apostolic succession as far as the laying on of hands, uh, but were deviating in the teaching of Scripture? Yes. Um, yes. And how were they dealing with that? Because I think that's a harder issue to deal with than someone who just has some miracles and people are like, oh, you're a bishop or, oh, you're a priest. That's a more complex issue to deal with because they saw them have, they, they could trace their lineage right. back. Yeah, that's, that's part of what's going on with Marcion. There's, there's um, so what we can tell, Marcion was actually a, a priest. He was a presbyter who then makes his way to Rome, and that's when you see the flourishing of his heretical doctrine. And he's part of that Gnostic group. So Gnosticism, the idea that salvation is spiritual and you're saved from the world because the world is bad to get your spirit to heaven, and you're saved because you have an experience. You have an internal spiritual awakening, and that's the evidence to you that now you're going to be saved. And then you, you, you see that you've been saved because of that internal spiritual awakening, because you live a holier life, or in some cases, they just lived however they wanted to because Jesus already took away their sins. So that, that kind of Gnostic, and there's a whole lot more to it, but right. if you want to kind of condense what, what's going on, um, that spills out through the church. And so you've got Irenaeus writing a, about that in the latter part of the 100s. When you get into the 200s, Gnosticism's still there. It's still a problem. But Irenaeus's argument as an as a accurate description, an accurate assessment of what's been going on, people, they affirm it. They're like, yes, this is correct. So you see them doubling down. So if you've got a guy that is ordained and he starts to do this, more of the church presses back against it. And for the most part, you can see that kind of, the dust settles on some of that until you get to some of these figures that are colossal intellect genius guys like Origen, Origen of Alexandria, who was, uh, he created quite a stir in his own day, and then centuries later was actually condemned as a heretic for some of his own teachings. Having said that, though, I will tell you, if you could find something from Origen, read it, because the man wrote over 6,000 different treaties. Uh, his exegesis, like his principles for interpretation, phenomenal. I mean, he was just a stellar intellect. And this is, kind of goes to what you were saying, Alex, is because so much of the doctrine isn't defined yet. Right. How do they know what to define? They only start to realize what they need to define because of conflict that starts to happen within the church, whether it's through Gnostics, things that are clearly in error, and then other things are like, well, hold on. You don't see it until it's said in contrast to something else. And so this is where you start to see the churches really coming together to put in more form doctrinally. So you're saying that, and it brings me to mind, you know, I have a friend that went to a Roman Catholic high school, and one of his theology teachers that said that the church will always be perfect. And he kind of had a problem with that. And when you describe it that way, I mean, Jesus says that he's coming back for a spotless bride, right? We, we all yeah. understand that. And I guess, you know, my, my thinking is, if we can articulate this way, that sure, the church errs, but it's going to come against those things, and the church will be perfect, in a sense. Does that, does that make sense? Is that, is that right thinking? Christ will lead the church to victory. Okay. 
but he leads us through that valley of of the shadow of death. Right. So we see, as in the case of the New Testament books themselves, why do we have them? Because the apostles were encountering problems in the church and outside the church. They're drawing attention to it. Why, then, should we expect it to be any different with the generations that are following them? Which is all the more reason that we must insist that we be historic today. We have to maintain the historic forms that the church fought and contended with, otherwise we're going to fall into the errors that were condemned in the past. You know, I give an example, another example from the fathers. There's a guy named Tertullian, and he's in the early church in the 100s in Carthage. Now, Tertullian was a lawyer who converted. His early writings, he's part of the church. In the latter part of his life, he actually becomes a heretic and a schismatic. He joins the Montanists. So he's not reckoned as a saint because of it. His writing as a Montanist is still good, good stuff to read, and he's still a massively influential figure. Right. You know, he, he gives a matter of fact, the word Trinity, I believe Tertullian is one of the first to use the word Trinitas. He's one of the first guys to do that. So he's a significant figure, massive influence on Cyprian, who will be a few decades after him there in, in Carthage. But, you know, Tertullian, here's, here's this guy who is robust mind. As a matter of fact, think about the way, Caleb, we look at doctrine. Think about how we process doctrine. We think in legal categories as Western Christians, inheritors of a Western tradition. Why do we think that way? Because Tertullian put his stamp on doctrine in such a way that the categories with which he, he arranged doctrine, we still have received. It affected Cyprian. It affected Augustine. It affect, I mean, this is what it does. And here's, here's the difficult part, I think, for modern Christians, is they read the Bible and they think, oh man, I know what this means. I know what these words mean. I know what these phrases mean. And they don't realize that even the categories they're working from had to come from somewhere. And when you can go back and you, go, you can look at the fathers, when they're right, when they're stumbling, and in Origen's case, I mean, they completely have checked out, <laughs> you know, unlike compared to Tertullian and Origen for a second, one is Western and one's Eastern in this sense. Origen is doing full-on syncretism because of his teacher, another father named Clement of Alexandria. And these guys are both in the mid-100s into the early 200s. They, they syncretize, they blend Gnosticism and the faith together. Tertullian, he says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He calls for such a sharp break and that's probably what leads him into Montanism, because Montanism was another false teacher named after Montanus, I should say false prophet, who prophesied, who spoke in tongues, who had visions. He had two women, Masilla, Max, Maximilla and Priscilla, who were with him, who claimed to be speaking oracles from God. They prophesied the new Jerusalem would descend out of the sky and hover over the ground. I mean, they predicted all kinds of stuff. But because there was, there was phenomena, there were manifestations, there was zeal, and there was a significant holiness of character. If you didn't have holy life, you couldn't be in the church. You, you can see how they get pulled. You know, here you got this, this wild academic super brain origin who starts making syncretistic moves. And you got Tertullian, who's also, you know, super smart, but with that strong distinction from the world, goes in another way. I think it's interesting that when you bring up you know, these heresies and the things that are happening in the church, because, you know, the way that they're described, like, I can clearly see it still in the church. 
a lot of things in the church, you know, not not bashing any denomination or groups or anything, but you see it all throughout, especially I feel like in the American church, you see a lot of these things. Well, there's phenomenon happening, there's speaking in tongues, there's miracles, there's all this stuff, so they have to be right. And I think it's interesting to see how the church has dealt with that, especially in the past, you know, they've dealt with these issues. And I feel that as time goes on, you know, there are going to be some things, especially with technology and things, there are going to be I don't want to say innovations, but there are innovations in the church that, or not innovations, but there's issues in the church that have not been dealt with. So I guess that's the way that the church does need to deal with things. Like, I think that's what you kind of mentioned. We're saying about the the synods and the meeting and the con- conferences and councils and all that stuff. There, are, I mean, we see new issues arising in the church now. You know, some are heretical, sure. And- but I think I think the new issues that we see today aren't so much doctrinal issues. Because there's nothing happening doctrinally or even in praxis today okay. that they didn't deal with in the early church, probably with, even within the first 500 years, right. they didn't deal with already. And their answers to those challenges are codified in things like the Nicene Creed, yeah. the Athanasian Creed, you know, the liturgical rites that they passed down. So, I mean, and it starts early, as, as you said, it starts really early, but I don't think there's, what we're seeing today, the innovations we're seeing today really are old. You know, you get a couple characteristics of these these heretical groups, the schismatic groups. That's really what it is. Heresy always leads to schism. Right. So not only do they break away, but they create their own infrastructure with their own ministry and their own particularities of doctrine while claiming to be the true church. And I feel like most of them have just completely scratched history. They forgot, like not all of them, but a lot of them says, well, this history doesn't matter. We're going to rewrite our own, right? Yeah. Would that make, does that make sense? That's what happens. The phrases uh, going through basic training that um, my drill sergeant said was being anti-confrontational is a character flaw. Uh, and pretty much the whole point they were making was that you do have to confront some of these issues head on, yeah. and you have to start to confront these. So we take that kind of line of thinking over to uh, these different issues that we've already dealt with as a church by men who were brilliant, uh, right. very intelligent men, not just for their day, but for uh, of all, all days. Uh, they were just re- really intelligent. How do we confront these issues uh, that we're seeing in the church today? Because we're, we're literally just naming them one by one and looking at it. I think it's clear you can see it in the church, in different church groups. How do we deal with those? Do we deal with them? Is it worth the conflict uh, and breaking peace over? Uh, what's what's our, our, our strategy in dealing with these things and what is right? I don't know that we can answer that and quickly. <laughs> uh, I know it might be. A, a, yeah. So we do. First, we do. We deal with them, one, by being faithful to the Scripture, canonically, and to the way the Church has understood and confessed that through history. That's the first way. I mean, what's the fastest way that you te- teach bank tellers the real from the, the counterfeit currency? Show them real money. Y- yeah, they deal with the real money. And then that way, whenever they come into whatever kind of counterfeit, they know what it is. So that's the first way. And then the second way, I think there are certain things that you need to address head-on because of the threat it presents. One of the things that you see in the historic traditions of the church is the church doesn't jump on the fads because the fads rise and they fall. Yeah. And you see this, and this is why you see this with the fathers, and it's why we're, we're talking about them, because this isn't like a 10-year period. We're talking about a 200, 225-year window and how long it takes for ideas to really take their full shape to figure out what they are, whether they're legitimate articulations or they're heresies that need to be debunked. And that's, that's kind of how you process and work through what's going on. 
you know, maybe it'd be helpful if I if we do it like this. Let's let's say, you know, let, let's look at the Western Church first. Let's look at the Eastern Church. We'll look at the Western here in a second. But let's look at the Eastern trajectory of major figures after the the era of the new after the era of the New Testament and of the Apostolic Fathers. The first one I would bring up is Clement of Alexandria. I mentioned him as the teacher for Origen. Mm-hmm. Clement is in the late 100s, another genius guy, but he begins that process of syncretism, of weaving in Gnostic ideas, because it's a school. It's how they're catechizing. It's a catechetical school. They're very smart guys. They don't see what they're, like, they don't see what they're doing as a problem, but generation, a generation later will. They'll recognize, well, hold on, that was, that was too, too far. This is where our Anglican formularies speak directly to us. Because we're not justified by our right doctrine. We're justified by the acts of Christ and what he did on the cross. You see the difference? So if we're justified because all of our doctrine's right, well, then we're all lost. Right. So this is, this is why the formularies, even in the Reformation, that start to get articulated become important. And that's a whole different discussion. But so we go Clement to, of Alexandria to his student, who was Origen. Origen was such a devout young man that he tried to be martyred when he was 19 with his dad. Christianity is still legal then. What better gift can you give to the Lord than your own martyrdom? That's how he looked at it. As I mentioned, the man goes on to be a juggernaut theologian. He is a significant influence on another guy named Gregory Thaumaturgus, or Gregory the Wonder Worker. And Gregory, his time frame, just so you kind of got an idea, Gregory is born right around 213, and he dies in 270. So to kind of give you the picture here, because Gregory overlaps with some other fellows I'll mention in a minute. Well, Gregory's got a whole story that's phenomenal as well. And he's in Turkey. He's a disciple of Origen. Why, why draw all the way back to, to the, the influence of Greek philosophy with these guys and their Gnostic influences? Gregory is the guy whose language, he uses language that he inherited, but then he, he, he tweaks it, and I'll, I'll tell you even more directly how he does it. Um, but what he begins to teach becomes the basis for the Nicene Creed in articulating the persons of the Trinity. Now, the question is, did he get it from Origen? Did he get it from Clement? Well, a little bit, but well-established church tradition says that Gregory the Wonder Worker is one of the first guys that we have recorded events of to whom the Blessed Virgin Mary appears, shining like the sun, with the Apostle John. They both appeared to him and began to teach him how to explain the mysteries of the Trinity. And he starts to teach that as he's traveling around and doing his wonderful work, the miracles that he did, the wonder worker. And his doctrine is such an elevated teaching that it becomes the basis for things that go into the creed we confess every Sunday with the Nicene Creed. So you, you can see the trajectory of how, okay, here's this thing that's not quite right with Clement. Origen does a better job of tweaking it, but he's still got some issues. But we wouldn't say that those... We wouldn't say that they were rejecting Christ. They were working through topics that you're not going to deal with unless you're, in some cases, as you said, Adam, confronting them head on. But then in other cases, if you don't actively try to theologize, you don't develop, you don't, you don't articulate what should be. If someone has a limited vocabulary, are they really to explain complex thoughts? Can they explain complex? Think about it this way. If you only know addition and subtraction, can you really understand quantum mechanics? No. Do I think? don't think so. <laughs> right. I mean, you could, you could maybe get like the idea that there's some plusing, you know, there's some addition and some 
some lessening, there's some subtraction in it. I mean, you, you know that's going on, but you don't get the complexity. Theological language gives us the capacity to really talk about nuance and meaning, and that becomes really important. And people today are like, oh, that's not important. And they, they're saying that because, one, they've had a reduction in their, their ability to communicate. But they don't know history to realize that the only reason we have rights personally, individualized rights, as contemporary American citizens, is because of the debates the early church engaged in about what it meant for Christ to be divine and man, what it meant for him to be human. We are immediate recipients of those discussions, not just in the church, but in society at large. So those, that's just a trajectory of some of the guys in the East who are significant movers and shapers. So you've kind of talked about the people who were wrong and they, they disagreed. Um, were there people that we would consider right? Like, for example, Cyprian and his approach to a lot of different things. For example, his stance on baptism. If you were baptized by someone who wasn't legitimate, then your baptize, baptism was not legitimate either. What are some of the guys that were like, okay, they were, they were right on a lot of things, or we would say they were, they were good, they weren't heretics. What are some of those disagreements that they were having um, amongst the people who were rightly dividing the truth? Well, so let me, I don't want to cast a, a shadow on those Eastern guys I just mentioned, Clement, Origen, and Gregory. Uh, they are essential figures. So even though they have points of their doctrine where we would say, no, that's not correct, we're saying that with the benefit of hindsight. So, again, I would recommend if you get a chance to read Clement of Alexandria, read him, read Origen, and definitely uh, Gregory the Wonder Worker, because he's a lot more in step with what, what's moving forward, right? So I don't, I don't want to castigate, you know, their, who they are um, and, and their contribution. For the Western Fathers, and Cyprian is part of the West, because he is in Carthage in North Africa, and he's in the 200s. So he lives from about 200 to 258, and he's martyred, actually. He flees with the first major, martyr, uh, major persecution that comes through. He's a contemporary to Gregory the Wonderworker because they both write about the plague that's ravaging the empire and how the, the unbelievers are, are leaving their dead and they're throwing the semi-dead out into the streets. They're just leaving them to die. But it's the church who's, who's coming in, suffering and dying. They're not... You have a couple cases of people praying for healing, but they're basically coming in, getting sick, and dying with the people that are dying. And that starts to convert the world. So Cyprian and Gregory are both, uh, oh, the patriarch in Alexandria. What's his name? Oh, what's his name, Caleb? Come on, come on. Dionysius. Dionysius. He, he's writing about it, too. That's what I was thinking it was. Absolutely, yes. Okay. <laughs> it was right. on the tip of my tongue, that, that, too. That's where it was. That's where it was. <laughs> but point being, they're writing about this. And Cyprian to your point about baptism, because of this persecution that's sweeping through, you've got a lot of people who are leaving the church. They're not, exper- they're not going to pr- suffer. What do you do when the persecution's over and they want to come back? And so you had in Rome a guy named Novitian. And Novitian said, you can't come back. You've fallen away and there's no repentance for you. And he creates, there's the heresy, and he creates schism, his own church. And it grows for a long time. It's around for hundreds of years, as a matter of fact. They're the holy church. If you're holy, you can go there. The unholy people have to go to the Catholic church. That's how they looked at it. Cyprian agrees with Pope Stephen, I believe at the time, the Bishop of Rome, Stephen, in an argument against Novitian, right? Now, in the shakedown of all that's going on, Cyprian says this. 
if you've been baptized by a heretic, your baptism isn't valid because we don't know that you're really baptized into Christ. Makes logical sense. Well, it's after Cyprian, hundred and some odd years, Augustine kind of calls all that into question and he says, you know, I'm not really sure about this one, guys. We need to revisit this for a moment. And so then you see a change in the teaching of baptism that whoever baptizes, when they're baptized, as long as the form is preserved, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's a valid baptism. So the, the process of rebaptism doesn't exist. You, can't, you don't get rebaptized. You only get baptized once. So you see in Cyprian, his teaching about baptism itself is kind of is set aside, but his teaching on the unity of the church is preserved. So in the same way that we were talking about the Eastern guys when it comes to our doctrinal boundaries, so to speak, in the West you see, through the writings of these fathers, geographic boundaries start to take shape. For example, you ever heard of a, um, of a metropolitan? I live in one. Not the ice cream. Oh, that's what I was thinking. So metropolitan is a title that's used by some of the Greek churches for a person in significant authority over, a, over an area. The Greek word metron is like where we would get the word limit or jurisdiction. And Paul tells the Corinthians that he didn't exceed his limit. He didn't go beyond the scope of his, of his authority. And those Corinthians were part of it. We see in the writings of the apostles that they're sent to people groups, sent to the Jews, sent to the Gentiles, sent to this. When you get into the era of Cyprian, the geographic boundaries are really setting in beyond just people group boundaries. Because the church, where are you going to go where the church isn't? It's already everywhere. And so Cyprian's stuff uh, on the unity of the church is, becomes the bedrock for East and West moving on forward. And to, to just touch it for a moment with the, the English Reformation, the English Reformers were following this, the doctrine of Cyprian to say, this isn't a new church, this is the same church, it's always been, and we are organized with parishes and jurisdictional boundaries. So we see all of that kind of coalescing and happening, happening, and Cyprian is one of those guys whose language becomes a summation of what was before him, but then bedrock for everything after. I will say that uh, in the same process, there's more than just doctrine and, and practice. A lot of the things that they're going back and forth with each other about, you know, sometimes we can take for granted, and sometimes we're just ignorant of. You know, see, even when we're celebrating the liturgy on a Sunday, Hippolytus of Rome, in his book, Apostolic Tradition, he's writing about the year 200, and he's writing because of things that are changing in the church in Rome. They're updating things and, and innovating things, and he says, no, no, we can't do that. So he writes an entire treatise on how things are supposed to be done, how bishops are consecrated, how priests are made, how deacons are made, how the Eucharist should be celebrated, how baptism should be administered. He writes about the exorcists. He, write, he writes about the blessing of food, all kinds of stuff. And his book, his little book, Apostolic Tradition, becomes the basis for everything else, East and West, in the Church. So there's a whole lot of stuff that's written at this time that we have that overlaps with those Apostolic Fathers and is in a real way defending what they received. And that's the difference. That's the difference between the Apostolic Fathers, these Nicene Fathers, or pre-Nicene Fathers, I'm sorry, the anti-Nicenes, and the heretics. The heretics are breaking the tradition. And when you break the tradition, you will break the doctrine. Maybe not in your generation, but it's going to happen. And take a look around.
Yeah, it definitely sounds like from this time period that it looks like, I don't know, most of the time when you find out that there's a new rule applied, it's because somebody did something crazy that they had to make one. Yeah. <laughs> you usually see a crazy sign or something up. That's what this time period kind of feels like. Of just getting, that's how you're getting that structure. Unfortunately, a lot of times you get that structure when you start to see, what in the world's going on here? We need to fix this mess that's happening. So just to kind of close out this discussion part with the anti-Nicene fathers, you know, for anybody who's thinking, is it worth my time to read? Oh, absolutely. I'd recommend Justin Martyr. I mean, book one, chapter 65, the man explains how the Eucharist was celebrated, how the early church had service on a Sunday, what the deacons did. I mean, uh, there's so much here, east and west, everything from, as I mentioned, Mary and visions, you know, Mary appearing and teaching what becomes the creed, Cyprian talking about the unity of the church, you know, Hippolytus talking about how the church ought to be organized. You can go right on down the line and see a whole slew of people. Totally, totally worth your time. Uh, you can find most of those books on, online for free now. You, you can buy them on Amazon, but if, you, if you've got the, the eye strength to read them on a computer, just Google their names and you'll find their writings, and I recommend them to everybody. Uh, so yeah. I think Adam has a list of our frequently asked questions, our FAQs. So let's hear them out, Adam. Yes, Caleb, I actually have uh, quite a few today from uh, one of our listeners. Uh, his first question is, how do we get from the celebration of Christ's resurrection to Easter bunnies laying eggs and prancing, and I quote, all willy-nilly? All willy-nilly. Um, is that pig Latin? What is that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, so that sounds like someone wants to know if the use of Easter eggs and Easter bunnies is a reference to the goddess worship Ishtar from Babylon. Um, <laughs> because that's the kind of stuff that gets peddled out there as to why Christians celebrate Easter. No, uh, we've been celebrating Easter since Jesus rose from the dead. Um, as to why certain cultural practices phase in and out really isn't the scope of our podcast. So, you know, I, I can say that you can find people making use of eggs in lots of dis- different religious celebrations across different religious backgrounds. I mean, even the use of red eggs is a celebration that's come out of the Eastern Church at Christmas because of Mary Magdalene and, and the connections with the resurrection. The actual use of eggs for Easter itself, I, I'm not familiar with the history on that one. I know I use eggs to celebrate breakfast. Yes. <laughs> I believe really what he's asking uh, with this question is, can he go on Easter hunts as a 6'3", 250-pound man? Probably not. <laughs> probably not. All the children would run. All right. Well, I, I probably agree with that assessment there. Uh, his second question uh, is, what does the word apostle mean, and why do so many people throw the title of apostle on themselves? Apostle. From the Greek, apostolos, meaning someone who's sent on behalf of another. It's derived from the now the Romans used it in reference to their colonies. Uh, col- the the leader of the colony was an apostle, like the naval captain or something to that effect. And then the the Hebrews used Sheliak, Sheliak, like a man Sheliak is as himself. So when you see the word Sheliak in the Hebrew Old Testament, you see in the Greek translation the word apostle, like Moses, and the prophets. So apostleship is someone sent on behalf of another with the authority of the sender for the appointed task. 
So the best English translation of apostle is ambassador, somebody who speaks with the authority of the sender. The contemporary use of apostle is not the historic use. So the 12 apostles are those 12 people, those 12 men specifically selected by Jesus to represent him. And they're called in the Revelation the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In contrast to other apostles, there's about 27 in the New Testament, that people that are called apostle. And it's a reference to the 12, and then to others who are involved in missionary work as those sent out by the churches. Uh, and then you have Paul's companions. We see in the scope of the New Testament, and we see as it gets articulated by the fathers, that the apostolic ministry, because the word ministry is liturgy, the apostolic ministry is an actual preaching ministry, but it's also connected to the celebration of the sacraments and the rotation of ministers around, liturgists, ministers, liturgists, around the table. How do they relate to that table and what Christ is doing at that table? What you're seeing in... Oh, well, let me say this. So the apostolic ministry in that sense, then, is primarily the bishop who stands as successor to the apostles and the priests and deacons serving with him in that capacity to preach the gospel to all nations teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The contemporary use of apostle in the modern charismatic movement largely developed because of their ahistorical approach by saying, well, this apostolic ministry in history isn't real because it doesn't have signs and wonders. What we see developing since, since that period, and you don't really see people using the term apostle in a charismatic sense until the 1980s and 1990s. That's how recent it is. When you're looking at modern and popular teachings on the fivefold ministry, uh, out of Ephesians 4.11, and you could say four or five, because it, the Scripture, Paul says, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So there's no extra uh, word some there. He just combines pastor-teacher into one, one, one office. So some go with four, some go with five. But that is derived mostly from churches without a historical root who aren't sacramental. And they, they, they process ministry purely in, the, in an evangelistic sense. So you go out and you evangelize, then you preach to, like by preaching, doing miracles, and then you call those people to, to a decision to follow Jesus, and then you teach in the Bible. Well, obviously, we, the church is going to affirm all that. But the language gets confusing because... What are we talking about when someone says apostle? What are we talking about when someone says prophet? And how does that relate to the sacraments? And so this is the difficulty when the church is schismed so much. We're using the same terms, we're not talking about the same thing, or we're talking about the same thing as it overlaps sometimes. That's, there, that's a, a short answer. Uh, you know, to go any longer, I don't know how... It, it, to his question, it's really going to depend upon who the person is and why they're using the title. What are they referring to? Like, today's St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick has long been called the Apostle to the Irish. Pioneer missions. So, it really depends upon how the word's being used, and who's using it. So I think our, our little background there, hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, I think you, you answered the question. I think semantic, it's a lot of semantics and cultural meanings for words, because I think you're culture does add a lot of uh, meaning to words. Yeah, if you sure. want to go with the canonical Genesis to Revelation definition, as it's been understood by the Church, the apostolic ministry, the an apostle, is bishop, priest, and deacon. 
Um, you, right at the very end of that question, you you mentioned kind of some of the issues that we have with this because of uh because of just schisms and uh, things like that. Um, this is actually a question about how to discern those. Uh, the question is, how do we separate the difference between uh, the reformation of parts of Christendom that are illegitimate and the ones that are uh, legitimate? Um, in other words, how do we separate a just breaking from ungodly leadership to follow biblical models of leadership, the tradition, from just generic and ungodly or unjust schisms within the church? One of the answers, because that's uh, people literally write down, write volumes of books about something like that. Uh, so answering, trying to answer that in two or three minutes. Let me let me try it this way. Um, continuity, continuity. How can you identify something as schismatic because it breaks continuity? There's a difference between reform and schism, and that's kind of what he's asking. Reform is when something has grown or developed in such a way that is incongruous. It's inconsistent with what it was prior. So you have to trim it back, and that's the reform. So as much as we were talking about the anti-Nicene fathers a little while ago, they would not be part of what you would call reform because they're still articulating. They're still working through and developing in conflict with other things. Right, so uh, other other challenges. Uh, things is so generic that they're they're coming into conflict with different articulations. So take for example the Montanists, who who create their own they schism to create their own structures to ordain, to celebrate the communion, to live a holy life. But they've left the church. So what is the particular heresy that they're engaged in? Like the teaching. What is the particular teaching that's an error that they're engaged in? There's a couple of them, and we won't revisit that. But schism is the bigger issue. If, if heresy stays within the church, there's a better probability that it's going to be dealt with sooner rather than later, because the way it will be dealt with is a synod. A bishop will deal with it. If the bishop or the priest is the one who's actually advocating it, and we'll see this next time talking about Arius, then the church is going to, it's going to pull in churches from the outside, and they're going to coalesce around dealing with that topic. And that's how you get a synod. That's how you get a council. So I think, in short, continuity is a, is a really good thing to look for. Where is it continuous? Where is it discontinuous? Yeah, I think that's uh, it's interesting because a question that kind of is a caveat off of that is uh, what separates Anglicanism or the, you know, the Anglican Church um, from being natively categorized as that. And I think continuity is a big part of that, that the the Anglican Church or the Church of England does not start with the breaking of from or even trying to do something a little bit different from uh, the the Catholic or the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's it, it starts with the original church planning to the British Isles. Right. Uh, that that's the beginning of the Church of England. Uh, not later on. It starts way before that. The intent of that. So I think yeah, got, the go- the gospel is in in in, in Roman Britain, where the Roman Empire is in Roman Britain. In the first century, it exists there in all its various forms through Patrick, because he was British, by the way. He was British who went to the Irish. The Irish churches, um, all the way up until Augustine of Canterbury shows up in 596. And then it's not until 660, 662, at the Synod of Whitby, that you have what you would consider papal jurisdiction 
in an immediate way start to take root in England. But even papal jurisdiction then doesn't mean what it meant 300 years later. What it means is if there's a dispute that you can't settle, then you appeal to Rome. Like I mentioned, the synods, you, you had five historic metropolitans, five historic patriarchates in the church, in the ancient church, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Rome. Rome's the only one in the West. So if there's anything happening in the British Isles for roughly a thousand years that you can't settle by Canterbury or York, you appeal to Rome to deal with it. Case in point is Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the the 1100s. When he gets into a spat with Henry II over church properties, Becket appeals to the papacy for protection. He appeals to someone higher than the king. So when the Reformation happens in England, they do not jettison the Catholic orders of the church. They retain all of it. They retain the, the scriptures. They retain the doctrines. They, they, they reform, so they peel back things that had been growing for a few hundred years. But it's really reformed Catholicism. It's not a new kind of Christianity in that sense. You have people that want to press that. They'll, they'll want to press to make it that way. That's not what they're doing. It's very different. The canons from 1604. If anyone says that the Church of England is not Catholic, that it's not part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it was to be excommunicated. Yeah, and I know uh, you covered a lot of this during uh, the history of uh, the Anglican Church during one of our uh, Sunday school lessons. I'm sure at some point in this podcast, we will get there and discuss this in more depth. And I think that sheds a lot of light. And I know it, that changed my perspective a lot on, on what we do and really where our ministry come from. It, it influences that and it changed my mind on a lot of that. So the, uh, the next question um, and the final question from this, this listener is um, in reference to kind of popular culture and uh, different uh, movies. Um, and he says, how come it seems on some TV shows and programs that exorcisms of people or homes are able to be done by pagan peoples or mediums? Um, he inserts that it's clear the scriptures speak that the kingdom of Satan isn't divided, and the only name by which demons and the devil tremble is the name of Jesus Christ. What, what's happening here? Are they just completely off? Off here? Or, yeah. Um, What's kind of happening here? There's a lot of assumptions in that that I don't have time to unpack. So I'll just read, I'll direct our readers to do just some more study, personal study on exorcism and deliverance. And I'll also note that every major world religion has them. There are Jewish exorcists, there are Muslim exorcists, there are Buddhist exorcists. There are people in every major world religion who deal with evil spirits. So when we're talking about Christian deliverance and Christian exorcism, in contrast to that, I just don't have time to answer that today. So I would recommend do some more study on it, uh, and maybe we'll do just a, we'll do a, 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 an entire podcast on that question because that's that's another one of those that we can't answer quickly. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, definitely a lot of uh, presuppositions inside of that that one question. That right. I, I, w- I would recommend to any of our listeners who want to send in questions, and not even if they don't want to send in questions, ask yourself why you're thinking about the things the way you're thinking about them. What are your undefined presuppositions? If, you, if you've come to a thought pattern, take a step back for a second and try to figure out why you're thinking about something a certain way. The method of theologizing is as important as the theologizing itself. They go hand in hand. And we've got, we got one more that came in, and we'll wrap up with this uh, today. 
and it was about the sign of the cross. For those of you guys that aren't that don't know about him, a fellow named uh, Bishop Robert Barron. He's a Roman Catholic bishop out in, in on the West Coast. He's got a lot of good stuff out there. A couple things that I, I kind of am leery of when he quotes von Balthasar that we can believe that hell is maybe empty. I have I have an issue with that. Um, but he just put his his ministry just put out a book on the sign of the cross. It's excellent. And you know we make sign of the cross we make the sign of the cross here a lot. <laughs> Uh, and so people say, well, that's not in the Bible. Where did that come from? Well, it kind of did come from the Bible. In Ezekiel, God commands them to go and mark on the forehead with a mark. And the mark on that forehead in Ezekiel looks like a T sign. Like it's a Hebrew letter. It looks like a T to us today. Okay. When you get into the Revelation chapter 7, the angels go out and they mark on the forehead with the mark of God, the servants of God, to be protected. And Paul says that you're sealed with the Spirit, and that word sealed there is phragis, is phragis, like to be pressed and imprinted. Paul's talking clearly about something internally that happens to us, but we can see the, the correlation between, because he uses that word phragis for circumcision, there's an actual mark of the flesh. Well, what happens when the, the, the Spirit, the heart is circumcised? That's the seal with the Spirit. And the early Christians symbolized that with the sign of the cross on the forehead after baptism part of that practice. So when you move further into church history, I mentioned Tertullian. I mean, he talks about making the sign of the cross all the time. When you kneel down to pray, when you stand up, when you're walking on a journey, I mean, he talks about it at length. Uh, you know, Chrysostom, he's a post nineteen father. Chrysostom says, when you sign yourself, think of all the mysteries contained in the cross. It is not enough to form it with the finger. You must make it with faith and goodwill. When you make your when you when you mark, he says, you know, over the from the top of your head all the way down, marking your your the whole cross on your or whether you're even marking just the forehead, your eyes, and over your heart when we read the gospel, all your members are part of that sign of the cross, offering yourself as a victim, pleasing to God. And then uh, Luther, people are like, oh, well, that's just Catholic and Orthodox. Well, well, Martin Luther, as soon as you get out of bed in the morning. You should bless yourself with the sign of the cross, of the Holy Cross, and say, May the will of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be done. Amen. So, I mean, the, the celebration of the cross goes all the way back into the book of Ezekiel as a foreshadow, and it comes forward into history. I would recommend, I believe the guys at Word and Table did a whole series, a whole uh, discussion on the sign of the cross a couple years ago. So I'd recommend that to those who want a, a more... Uh, robust answer, but yes, we do make the sign of the cross very often through the course of the liturgy, and that's coming from the practices of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the early church. Well, I think that about does it uh, for us here today. Uh, tune in next week while we discuss, what is it, Father Daryl? The Nicene Fathers. Well, thank you all for listening to us, and I'm Caleb. I'm Adam. I'm Alex. I'm Daryl. See you all next week.